0: Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest talk, AI and Radiology, Current Status and What You Need to Know. So I'm going to have a probably a four-part adventure looking with you at where AI is, where it's going, and just some of the thoughts that I I thought I'd like to share with you and get your opinion back. Now, I'm going to tell you one of the challenges of this talk. Today is June 20th, and I'm recording this talk. Uh, What I do for Us for the lecture series, I often record a large number of talks in a short period of time after I've put a lot of time getting them together. Uh, It makes it more efficient for us. And I know from Sarah's list that this talk is going to be sometime in December. It's going to be the end of uh, 2022, maybe 2023, early 2023. And six months, if I speak about the pancreas, or I speak about the kidneys, or I speak about small bowel, there's not a lot of change possible, probably not anyway. But for AI, the world can change and seems to be changing every few months. So if there's something I say that says, boy, did Fishman forget to talk about this? Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. When it gets closer to the time, I'll do some Facebook Live and some YouTube Live to fill in anything that there is a gap. Now, when I give this talk in person, and I'm gonna do it at the end of June, believe it or not, at uh, University of Pennsylvania's Martha's Vineyards course. It's an honor to be there for uh, many times. It's I truly find it an honor to be there. This was supposed to be one of my talks in 2020. And obviously we know what happened in June 2020. We know what happened in June 2021. But um, I think we're going to be okay in June 2022. So I look forward to the meeting. And the way I'm going to start the meeting is asking the audience three questions. Do you believe AI will significantly change your practice within the next two to five years? And I think everyone's going to say yes. Do you believe AI will benefit or hurt radiology? I think there you are going to have a lot of people with, I'm not sure either way, but I think it could be problematic. And do you believe you're prepared for the impact of AI in your practice? And I got a feeling most people will say no. I gave a talk at the Tumulty course, which is a course in internal medicine at in Hopkins about a month ago. I gave a lecture in the morning on AI. And then in the afternoon, I had a breakout session with some of the attendees and they were all internal medicine docs. And I asked them, do you think AI is gonna impact your practice? Every one of them said yes. And then I asked how, and every one of them said, I don't know. I see patients, you tell me how it's gonna affect my practice. So let's look at this a little bit better. Now, in this article by Banja, it's hard to predict the future and what immensely complicates predictions over seemingly promising technologies like gene therapy or AI is how their complex construction will interface with other equally complex and dynamic technologies, all of which operate in an environment of unceasing economic and institutional flux. That says it all. It remains anyone's guess as to how AI apps will be affected by their integration with packs, how liability trends or regulatory efforts will affect AI, whether reimbursement for AI will justify its use, how mergers and acquisitions will affect AI implementation, and how will AI models will accommodate ethical requirements related to informed consent, privacy, and patient access. And in that paragraph, Banja summarizes the good, the bad, and the ugly. Very well said. Now, If you look at things, I also gave a talk to the women's group at Hopkins, and these were all lay people, and I showed them three slides to show the impact of AI. Here was a sad article published in the the newspaper, Miami Herald, that a uh, woman died of breast cancer because the radiologist thought it was a benign lesion. Now, I don't know the details, and obviously you can't be perfect with every mammographic read, But then you had this article, Regina Barzilay, who's at MIT, talking about the ability for AI to pick up breast cancer five years before it shows up on a traditional mammogram. So tremendous work being done there. And then this article, about a company with a, with a software called Transpara AI can effectively detect breast cancer. And in the study, over 2000 cancers missed by screening were detected by this program. And there's been several articles really looking at breast cancer, looking at mammography, looking at a number of different modalities, including MR. And in this article by McKenney, Again, in an independent study of six radiologists, the AI system outperformed all of the human readers, period. This robust assessment of the AI system paves the way for clinical trials to improve the accuracy and efficiency of breast cancer screening. So when you look at the articles, and here's another one. Radiologists improve their cancer detection accuracy in tomosynthesis when using an AI system for support. While simultaneously reducing reading time, the standalone breast cancer detection algorithm of an AI system is not inferior to the average performance of radiologists for reading digital breast homosynthesis exams, and the use of an AI support system could make advanced and more reliable imaging techniques more accessible and could allow for more cost effective breast screening programs. What more can you ask for? The only thing you question is why isn't it in practice already? Let's go from mammography back to CT, since that's what I know about a little bit. We're past 50 years in the CT business. Now, if I ask the question, how you read a CT scan when I got started, we looked at film. The films were small, eight by 10. There were four images on a film. There were 30 to 40 slices per case. Acquisition time was around 40 to 50 minutes. That's because we had a very fast scanner, which The scans were only 10 seconds long and roughly one minute per slice for reconstruction. But of course, the resolution was somewhat limited. And you were pleased with yourself. You did a good 10 or 11, sometimes 12 cases a day. Now fast forward 40 years. We don't have film. Most people don't know what film is. We look at our images on a workstation or a computer, two to 4,000 slices per case. Acquisition times are often 10 to 15 seconds, real time reconstruction. The images are high resolution, lots of information. We can pick up small tumors. The challenge is, can we do that? Now you can see what happens. Here's just a simple case, nothing very special. This was a patient who had abdominal pain literally for two years, had scans. And if you look at the axial images, Maybe you see something by the duodenum, maybe you don't. And when you look at the images as you go forward, and then you look at the coronal display, you begin to wonder, do you see anything on the coronal display? Or looking back at the axials, do you see a mass? Well, I'm going to tell you, look right there. Look right there. We just passed it. Is that something right there? Well, here it is on some spot images i took from that video dilated common duct there's something at the ampulla here it is better shown three sonometers. it's enhancing pushing into the duodenum mild prominence of the common duct yet this wasn't seen and this was a malignancy what's the issue well the issue from going from the ct is kind of going to a waldo cartoon when you look at a ct scan Maybe you have a history, like the question is, where's Waldo? Maybe that's the history. Where's the cause of the patient's abdominal pain? And you're looking at so many things. You're trying to get around the noise to find out what's important. Well, it's hard to find Waldo. He's in there somewhere, but when you find him, he's always very easy to see. The same thing is true with looking at a CT scan or an MR or any imaging modality. When you're looking at it and you're on the cutting edge, sometimes the lesions are not as obvious as one would like. And you either don't read something or you hedge a bit. In retrospect, it's always obviously there. Now, when you look at numbers, daily practice, interpretation errors, three to 4%. However, when there's findings on the study, it can reach 30%, which is somewhat amazing. The majority of errors were errors of underreading where the finding was simply missed. Now, I always make the point that underreading is the biggest problem. If I see a liver mass and I say it's a hemangioma, someone else may look or someone else will look and say, well, no, it's hepatoma or it's FNH. But if I say it's normal, there's a good chance no one is ever going to open that study again for a long period of time. When you look at this article by Rosencrantz, when he looks at addendum to reports, it it ends up that when you have addendum, it's not like someone's giving a different size measurement. It's basically showing you that something was missed. Now, we all are very busy. We were busy before COVID. It seems we're busier now more than ever. And to no one's surprise, this article by Sokolovaca made the point that the faster you read, the more errors you make. Okay, none of us ever thought that if you read faster, you made less errors. But here, the error rate is almost three times greater when you increase the speed compared to whatever that person's normal rate was. So again, very important. We're reading faster than ever, which kind of makes us all worry. We're probably making more errors than ever. So let's think about the pancreas for a second and how we can change things. We've always looked at axial CTs and then multiplanar came along. We know you need to look at coronals and sagittals in all studies. Most people are starting to do that. You can reconstruct the coronals and sagittals at the technologist's workstation. It can be programmed into the scanner. 3D imaging we think is very valuable, volume rendering and MIP imaging. But under the prediction category, I said it was going to be mainstream in the mid 80s. I still think it's going to be mainstream somewhere Uh, i don't know when but let's look at what else we could do we have new types of 3d like cinematic rendering we also have new data analysis like radiomics and then we have deep learning or ai and what i'm going to say is the future is the addition of the three things in yellow to make us better now when you look at cinematic rendering it's really a technique that's volume rendering which we've been doing for a long time but with better lighting models. And I think one of the things cinematic rendering can do is t- texture mapping, which allows you to pick up smaller lesions, look for changes in texture and not just masses. So example, axial CT, there's a small neuroendocrine tumor. You can see it here by the tail of the pancreas, but doesn't show all that well in the cinematic, but then you change the rendering technique and look how obvious the texture of the gland is and there's the lesion right here so one of the really nice things about cinematic and this shows both the good and the bad is you can pick up very subtle lesions because of changes in texture but you also can see that if you have the wrong texture maps you can hide lesions the question is how can we always get the best texture map we do some predefined texture mapping we've come up with about 150 presets and then we go from there but you can imagine it is somewhat of a challenge we think in the future ai will be applied to cinematic rendering and will make the job easier another example this is a more obvious case mass and tailor pancreas with calcification neuroendocrine tumor here it is on the mip imaging with the calcification and here it is on the cinematic rendered images You see the central calcifications, you see the mass. A really nice example of the texture mapping of a neuroendocrine tumor. Now, what about this case? This case was misread, it was read as normal. Well, if you look quickly at the body of the pancreas, it really isn't normal. There's some very subtle textural changes here. If you go to the cinematic, it becomes substantially more obvious we need to pick up all of the small lesions and texture mapping may prove to be advantageous. Here you can see the lesion. You also see the celiac and SMA. This patient would predictably be potentially resectable. Now, other things that are coming. Now, we've been working with the HoloLens from Microsoft, working with Siemens, and it gives you really this augmented reality. Now, there's work coming from Facebook. There's work coming from... Apple in the same realm. One challenge with HoloLens, the lens are about $3,500. It's expensive. Now, it's also when you capture things with images, it's hard to really get the feel. But when you wear those lenses, you really feel like you're part of the scene. Here you can see the liver, the portal vein, the SMV, and relationship to the ribs. You move things around with your fingers. It's all finger motion. Uh, And you can see I'm posting it against the wall in my office. You gotta be careful you don't trip when you have those glasses on, but you can move things around. And we're looking at that to see whether that also will impact on patient management, not so much from lesion detection, but from management perspective. Now, the next thing we're gonna talk about is radiomics. Radiomics is a way of quantifying the information in a scan. It refers to the extraction of mineable, high dimensional data from radiologic images and has been applied within radiology, in oncology, but also other areas, but we'll talk about oncology to improve diagnosis and prognostication with the aim of delivering precision medicine. The premise is that imaging data has significantly more information than just looking at the scans, and has information about tumor biology, behavior, and pathophysiology, and has information that we may not recognize unless we use radiomics. Now, what does radiomics do? This article by Shore is a good article. You have data, you then look at the images, you may segment out the pancreas or the liver, And then what you do is you look at different features of the data and try to get feature extraction. Now there's thousands of different things you can look at within a data set. The key is to figure out what features are most common or most important for you to make the diagnosis. We look at things like shape. We look at first order features. We look at image texture by looking at different filters. We look at many different things. The question, of course, becomes, which things do you need to look at? But we typically have looked at hundreds of things, though when you look in retrospect, probably about 10 of them are most important, but the key is trying to figure out which is most important. The way you think about radiomics and looking at this pancreatic mass, tumors are spatially heterogeneous structures, heterogeneity can be quantified on imaging data, and radiomics converts this imaging data into mineable feature space. We talk about, as I mentioned, first order, shape, second order, and higher order. First order talks about distribution of the individual voxel values. We use histogram-based methods, mean, median, maximum, minimum, and we look at uniformity, entropy, skewness, kurtosis, and the like. Here are just some examples of looking at first order and how it separates out the various tissue and information within the data set. We then look at shape. Shape can be very important. Compactness, diameter, spherical disproportion, surface area, volume and the like. Now, when you look at second order, what you're looking at is interrelationships between voxels of similar contrast values. You're looking at gray level co-occurrence matrix, gray level run length matrix. And you could read about this. But the point is what you're doing is looking at multiple features. You'll then apply higher order statistics, various grids, various wavelengths, various filters to optimize the information within the data set. And then what you end up doing is really creating a fingerprint. If you're successful, you'll find specific information in that data set that can be used to make predictions. So we looked at 478 radiomics features from CT scans of the pancreas. We had to draw out the pancreas by hand. We looked at normals versus pancreatic adenocarcinoma. And what you found was, and these two images show, is that adenocarcinoma and normal pancreas had different signatures. When you got down to it, there were 40 radiomics features that were most critical. And when you look for detecting the presence of pancreatic cancer, the overall accuracy was 99% with 100% sensitivity. Now that's spectacular results based simply on looking at The pancreatic gland. Now one thing radiomics does not do, it does not show you where the tumor is, you need AI for that, but it's telling you there's a tumor in the gland because of the fingerprint. Our our results show that after manual segmentation of pancreas boundaries, radiomics features in the random forest classifier were highly accurate in differentiating adenocarcinoma from normal cases. The radiomics features most relevant to differentiate the two were based on shape and textural heterogeneity. Now, I will say that one of the things you recognize is if you looked at neuroendocrine tumors, if you looked at the kidney, what features work well for one set of data do not necessarily work well for the other. And the point is that you could imagine that if you ran a radiomics program on every pancreas, and you knew which cases that the computer said had pancreatic cancer, you would look much more carefully to find the tumor. And also you can imagine the future would be you would have radiomics and AI combined together. So again, this becomes very, very important. So recent applications of radiomics and pancreatic imaging has been in detection, classification, and prognostication. So there's been many articles. Here was an article we wrote using radiomics to predict outcome and survival in patients with pancreatic cancer. And the same work's been done with various tumors. And the conclusion was addition of CT radiomics features to standard clinical factors improved survival prediction in patients with pancreatic adenocarcinoma. So it did have an impact on what we did. Here's just some of the results from that article. You can see very nicely. We found the radiomics features extracted from tumors and from the non-neoplastic pancreas can be used to improve survival prediction models of patients who underwent surgery for pdac the algorithm could be combined with other pathologic and genetic biomarkers as we talk about personalized medicine radiomics can become a very important part of personalized medicine now just to show you that this is not only for pancreatic adenocarcinoma This is a presentation we did about a month ago in May 2022. Uh, This is a work from Amar Javad and Chris Wolfgang at NYU and our team at Hopkins looking at staging neuroendocrine tumors with a CT-derived signature. The question comes with neuroendocrine tumors, grade one, grade two, grade three, grade one you simply can follow. Well, pathology often is not correct and tumors do change, how do you manage patients? Could we develop a CT radiomic signature to predict tumor grade, and how well could we do compared to EUS with FNA? Well, we looked at 2,436 features, came down to 40 features with a random forest technique for being able to look at this, and there's been other articles that have shown very similar things. Again, we won't go into the mathematics. The important thing about this is that we were very good at grading tumors and being able particularly to predict the grade ones, which means those are the patients that can be managed conservatively. We looked at the radiomic signature and we did better than EUS in making decisions so again it's very important this is our initial work but you can see the promise it has strong AUCs high sensitivity and again looking at these radiomics features can truly impact on how we manage patients so we're going to keep working on that and look at that very carefully now one of the challenges with radiomics signatures i will tell you is that there's been many articles which show good results in the pancreas and other organs as well. But one of the challenges, of course, has been that radiomics is very dependent on the protocols used, on the scanner type, and people who get excellent results at one institution fail the second you have outside scans. We think we've developed stronger algorithms that can do multiple different data sets and we are in the process of getting additional data from additional sites and hopefully prove this to be true. So, radiomics, signatures, neuroendocrine tumors, predicting management, pancreatic cancer, detecting tumors, all of these things are indeed very critical. As I mentioned, there are some limitations of texture analysis, scan of variability, how we do the studies, the type of reconstruction, Hopefully these will be solved and we're working very hard on making sure that's the case. It doesn't really help if you need to develop an algorithm for every scanner you have. So by necessity, radiomics and AI tools are initially developed in controlled environments, which poorly reflect clinical practice. Again, you have to start somewhere, but you then need to go out and get more data. One of the biggest challenges in AI, and we'll talk about this throughout the lectures, is being able to use someone else's work. It doesn't necessarily work the same when it leaves the lab. So we'll stop here. Um, A lot of work is being done with radiomics. A recent review of FDA approved devices with an AI component found there were 39 radiology approvals since 2015. 35 of them focusing on assisting radiologists with diagnosis, 29 of which were for breast, lung, and prostate. And many more are coming, and many of them will look at pancreas. So again, we think that's indeed very exciting. Now, what else can be done? Let's come back and do a little bit more talking and discussing about radiomics when we go to part two of this series. And we'll see you in a few minutes.